0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. where We specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach within the constraints of private practice. So we have group mentoring, one-on-one mentoring, and courses, both in person and online. So check it out at tkex.org. I am really excited today to have back on Amy and Bronny. Both are super passionate healthcare professionals coaches, educators, communicators, especially mm-hmm. on the online world, and advocates in our industry. So, highly, highly recommend checking out their individual podcasts. It's been too long, ladies, so really, really appreciate you coming back on for, for our podcast.
1: It's a pleasure. Always.
0: We've got a, a huge list of, of topics, and I'm like itching to start, but um, if, <laughs> if we were to, to begin with Within healthcare, uh, a paternalistic approach. I think the term gets thrown around here and there, um, but maybe if we start off with with how it influences our our practice, what what it is, um, and what clinicians should really know. Um, I'm very aware and acknowledging that I'm speaking as a, a person in a man's body, and I probably don't experience as much as as women do in terms of, for not not only patients but clinicians. How does a paternalistic approach impact healthcare especially for those living with pain and Ronnie Amy, Amy this is a free flying conversation go I want it.
1: to kick off Amy go for it
2: all right well I was gonna I want to start by saying uh it is it is called paternalistic but that does not mean that women cannot also fall into the category of being highly paternalistic mm. or paternalistic, if you will but like if you, you know, if you think about the word at its base, right, it is parenting. Mm. It is, it is a parenting. I know better. I've got more information. You shush and listen to me. Mm. Um, you know, and, and yes, yes, the, the whole white male stuff, but But mostly a, you're coming to me because I'm the expert. I know more than you. I don't need to hear what you have to say. You need to listen to me Mm -hmm. is my understanding. I would love for Bronnie to do her beautiful flowery thing where she expands on all of that. (laughs) You know, the big, (laughs) I know better, listen to me because I'm always right. Yeah, And then all of the lovely nuances that come with that
1: like do what I tell you because otherwise you won't get better. And if you don't do what I tell you, then it's your fault that you don't get better. And even if you do what I tell you and you don't get better, well, clearly you didn't do it well enough because I know what I'm doing. Yes.
0: Mm. Responsibility <laughs> is placed on, it's, it's, it's ironic in a way. It's the, the clinician takes on the responsibility of the decisions because they mm. think the patient doesn't know any better. And then if it goes well, it I, I guess it's attributed to the clinician, even though the, the patient mm-hmm. did all the hard work and actually, you know, did the things. It, yeah. It's like it's it's a it's an interesting cycle that just perpetuates throughout. Um within the like, perhaps I, I wonder if it's more of a biomedical lens that you know we we, we find what's wrong, we treat it, and then therefore paternalistic approaches it makes a lot more sense within that lens. But there are
1: times when it's absolutely appropriate when i want somebody to be paternalistic so if i am going into the er I, i'm having a heart attack i need somebody to take control of the situation however most of our healthcare problems are not in that sphere most of our problems with a paternalistic model come with chronic health where the same model is applied and yet the effect of those those chronic illnesses, the, the daily lived work of living with them is in somebody's own life. And where that is ignored or neglected or just um, sidelined, that's when we have problems. So I have no trouble with somebody having greater knowledge and for me as a consumer to say, tell me what you know. But then I want to reserve the re- the right to make my own choices and then not to be ridiculed or trivialized when I say, mm, actually, that one doesn't suit me. What else do you have it to offer? Or
2: full on dismiss, like, well, then I'm not going yeah. to treat you anymore if you want this. Yep.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because you're not doing it the way I want. Therefore, you are unmotivated. The names that I've seen given to people who've chosen not to follow the advice of somebody. Remember, it's advice. Now, when you call a plumber into your house, you ask them stuff and you reserve the right to say, no, that solution doesn't work for me.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you go and you find somebody else. You do the same with finding a lawyer. You work out whether this lawyer is going to do what the way that you wanted and you listen to them, but you don't just say, oh, thank you very much. I'll do it your way. You, you have that sense of autonomy. But in healthcare, we haven't really permitted that. And so to me, the yes, there is a system that is based around the idea that doctor knows best. But it's, it's also that individual clinician who also believes that they know best. And it kind of, yeah, we can say it's just a biomedical lens, but I don't think it is just doctors. I think it's when we start to think, actually, what I know matters more than what this person who's living with this thing knows, then we've got a problem.
0: Yeah, I, I see the there's so much. Uh, it makes so much sense to to provide expert advice, especially if someone's asked for it. It's it's more when the consent perhaps isn't there within the decision making process. So we're not providing mm. that shared. Um, consultation and and we've I guess gone away from being the the coach the the guide the person with that expert knowledge and we've gone into this is what you need to do goodbye there's there's no time don't even
1: share um I mean I don't know how many times I've been told this is the treatment and no alternatives no other options no suggestion that there are there's actually debate Inside, how we should manage any of these conditions. You know, it's been very um, straightforward. This is this is what this is what we will do. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay, I know enough from other areas of my health to know that, especially pain, to know that that's not the case. And I don't know anywhere where there's straightforward agreement, except in acute care. And even then, we could argue it. That you know that we are supposed to just roll with it, um, it just seems quite odd.
2: I um, <laughs> I, I think places where it, like it it's the assumptions, right? Because their consent isn't given, right? no. Like other than we've showed up in your office and we've asked a question or two, you've run your test, you've given your diagnosis, you've told us what we're supposed to do now, but the the amount of assumptions made between. Mm those jumps is always astounding to me um I'd have a heart monitor to track my tachycardia because nobody believed that I was having it because you know it wouldn't happen in front of anybody mm. There's <laughs> any problem, right like mm. I would say that is the paternalistic side of medicine whether mm. I, I will be honest I don't hear men tell these kinds of stories gentlemen if these mm. are things that have happened to you I would love to know because I would like to believe that it is not just an attack on women in general. I really want to believe that. Currently, I don't have enough evidence to believe that. But I go in, I'm supposed to have this little monitor put on. I mean, it's a sticker, they're gonna peel it off, they're gonna stick it on, they're gonna clip the thing. It's like some 18 year old kid, right? My son is with me because I'm not able to walk long distances at this point. And um, the, the, the kid, Putting this sticker on is like, you don't look well. I think you need to go to the ER. And I was like, no, I don't need to go to the ER. I'm here to get this thing put on. He looks at my son. Mm. At my son. And my son says, she doesn't need to go to the ER. She'll be fine. He looks like the tech looks at me again, kind of shakes his head. And he goes, you're sure she's going to be fine. He's 20. Yeah, I'm 67 at the time why does the 20 year old why is why is it his opinion that this you know aide mm-hmm. decides his authority is what's going to make that decision and i hear that over and over and over again in with my clients where they're like well i you know i had one woman say i just take a random man with me <laughs> Like she's not married, she's not dating. She's like, I just, I just take a random man with me to the appointment to repeat what I've said Mm. because I'm tired of not being heard. Mm. That's a problem. I don't care if it's a male clinician or a female clinician that's doing it. Nobody should have to bring a second person to be believed.
1: Yeah, I bring it. I'd like to bring someone with me, but so that they can hear what's being said. But not to be believed, that's, that's terrible, that's wrong.
2: It is, and I, I, maybe it's just, I mean, we're totally, we, we, we all agree, I'm in the States, we're all screwed up in the States right now. Send help, like, please send help, I need extrication. But, <laughs> and I, again, I like to pretend that maybe it's better, but I've had clients from all around the world and so I know it's really not, but dear Lord, can we just believe people when they say they hurt?
1: Yeah. And not Can we question them as if there's their own experience is insufficient or that they're manipulating or that there's secondary gain. Now I hear this from from physios, allied health, who have this, this belief that there must be some sort of secondary gain if somebody's saying something and it doesn't correspond with their with the professionals perspective What they learned in school there must be something going on you must be wanting something like we can't just say well actually what I want is for you to believe me um it's it's got to be for attention or something that's you know I I posted a long time ago on my blog about um the fact that there's a discrepancy between self-reported questionnaires and performance So what people do in front of you. Now, that's a really common finding. And I wrote, here are all the reasons that this performance could be different from what's been self-reported on a questionnaire. You know, time of day, um, perhaps the person has not done this for a long time. Perhaps they are feeling a little bit apprehensive about how hard you're going to push them. blah, blah, blah. The negative feedback I got from people suggesting that basically people do perform differently because they don't want to perform. If we believe that, and these are health professionals, your relationship with that person from the beginning is shot. If you don't trust the person that you are supposed to be working alongside and helping, then why on earth would they trust you?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you said it. I, I can see context um especially in, in maybe patients going through a compensation system and the the idea that they're malingering or wanting to benefit from the system's benefits it's a uh, it, it doesn't help ironically it doesn't even help the clinician involved if, if we don't have that assumption that you know that person is is telling the truth and we, we don't honor their experience that's more than likely going to contribute to them staying in that persisting state right it's a i think that's first and foremost helpful to to just assume that you know just believe them just validate just
2: believe them well and you know in in those systems right when you're in those systems you're in the work comp system or you're in some kind of like uh, assessment you're being assessed whether it be by your friends your professionals whatever like i made a post not not too long ago that was like please stop asking me if i'm better yet Mm. Because it's this, it's this same, like you, you general, Queens, you, um, Mm -hmm. you have expectations of me. And so when I'm better, I'm supposed to meet those expectations. But if I'm not better then I don't have to meet them. And like the work comp system is the same. So Mm -hmm. as, as the, the sick person or the hurt person, you have to fight to not be normal. Like, yeah. If I tell you I'm getting better and you expect more of me and it's probably outside of what I can actually do.
0: Mm.
2: So I do have to, I've got to hold that close and I've got to be really, really careful how better I tell you I think I am.
1: Yeah. It's, because it's unrelenting. That pressure to get better, improve, improve, improve is unrelenting. And the, the other thing that strikes me about that belief is that there's this belief that as a therapist, I can tell that you're faking, (laughs) that you're not trying hard enough. Now, I'm not a lie detector, and I've worked in pain management for most of my career. I can tell you that I know of two people who were faking, okay? The only reason I know that they were faking was one... (laughs) one was a guy who'd, who'd taken on board using a wheelchair um, for everything and unfortunately he chose to leap from his wheelchair to his roof and repair and and um, paint his roof he lived opposite one of the psychologists that we was working with him so that was that was dumb um, and that was sustained and he'd there was inconsistency in terms of, you know, he was supposed to be in the wheelchair, wasn't able to move, but he had no change in his his muscle um, bulk at all. So there was that too. And then the other one was a guy who, he vowed and declared that he couldn't do anything. Eventually he got angry because we didn't want to give him opioids. He threw the table at the doctor and, and I and was really quite, Violent, and then they found later that he had um, claymore mines that he'd stolen from the army in his house. Um, and by the way, he was working all the time. Those are the only two, and I've done, I've seen thousands of people. And I would, the very first place I want to start from is this belief that this person is doing me very best, because that is what I see. If I start to doubt the person's word, and I think that this person's just faking it or something, where do I start to build trust again? Mm -hmm. Isn't it better to say, hey, it looks like you're really struggling and help that person find a way through, even if they are faking, because that way at least I'm taking the most generous option And they will get better. But as soon as they start saying, "I don't trust you," you've lost it. You're not going to get that person's um, sense of trusting you back ever. So why would you do that?
0: Absolutely. It's um, and it's interesting. There's I'm just thinking of ways to uh, approach this in a in a clinical context where, if there is say a, a case manager or other stakeholders continually asking the person if they're better or not. Mm. I think letting the person know about the communication, you know, involving them in what you are saying because they're the person in the center. So yep. I, I would feel like um I was, I don't know, the, the Hawthorne effect, I'm being observed, I'm being judged. If, you know, my clinician, if I had persisting pain, if my clinician was talking to someone behind my back, I would, be a bit suspicious myself and be a bit guarded and maybe not, you know, disclose everything that's going on for me. Cause I don't, you know, mm. you've kind of lost the trust. I think trust is earned. Mm. And if there's ways where we can involve the person in that decision-making process to respect their, they're within this, they're they're experiencing it. We need to keep them in the center.
1: Insurers and, and others can be sneaky. Um, and I certainly experienced that at work where I was asked not to document certain stuff, like the lack of predictive validity of functional capacity evaluations, I documented that, because there is little, there is no actual predictive validity for functional capacity evaluations. And I told the person this, and I said, this is what I'm going to say, let us work it down, we'll do it together. And this is where we go. But then to find that the insurer was unhappy with that, refused to pay for the work that had been done Um, so that will happen but I think to be ethical we can't be bullied as professionals to change what we document just to suit somebody who wants us to change our opinion because it works for them that's not what ethical practice is all about sometimes we're called to do difficult stuff and stand up and say this is this is my professional opinion and this is the evidence, and I, you know, cited lots of references as I do, um, <laughs> but but to find, you know, you we have to be prepared to do that as clinicians because if we don't, we're allowing someone else to sway our professionalism, um, and that makes everything we do suspect, and I don't think that is okay.
0: Yeah, you, you've touched on um, ethical healthcare and, and how we can respect the person's autonomy. We, we've touched on that with decision-making as well. Yeah. So then if, if we were to ref- reflect on our role as healthcare professionals, I can see a lot of um, professional identity crises. I'd like to term mm-hmm. them when, when coming across maybe some literature that goes against what we've been taught at university, especially with the new grads or, or new clinicians. Mm-hmm. What, what might be some, some helpful suggestions, maybe even reflecting on, on our own journeys um, with who we are, what, what is our role? Um, what kind of frameworks and stances come to mind when communicating this to, to newer clinicians?
1: Hmm. One thing we can't do in, in healthcare is take responsibility for the outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really important because that suggests that we can do things to people and that they have no part. And so it's all about us. So I can take responsibility for um, for sharing, for listening, for um, making, trying to make some sense with the person and let the person make the decisions about what they'll do and look at the good and the not so good about their choices my job is not to say I'm going to get you better and it's not my job to say you're going to be able to do x y and z I'm here to stand and cheer you on for sure but I think that's one of the important things to to see is that our job is to be well a coach stands beside stands there waving the flag and cheering somebody on and encouraging. And we've got a different perspective from the person doing because we've got that chance to see it bigger. We've seen more people who are similar. We've seen lots of different um, outcomes and we've seen all the different variables that could be at play. So we've got something really important to offer, but we can't take up the, the job of saying, I got you there. That's, that's just not right and so that is difficult because we don't prepare our young physios ots whatever for the reality that it's not up to them actually <laughs> yes you you've done all that squatting and you've got all of these special tests that you've learned and you've learned all of this stuff but actually in the end it's not you that matters it's the person in front of us that matters um And that's hard because people don't fit into little boxes. And I don't think we train people up to recognize that if a person doesn't fit into a box and most people don't, then how could we expect the algorithm that we follow to work for them? Um, So being ready to be flexible and, and humble, actually. We've got to be more humble about what we're doing. And how we're
0: working with people, yeah, Amy. I'd love to hear from your experiences as well as a as a coach um, and working with patients and, and groups of patients as well.
2: I, I do I do love my groups. They're so awesome because they help each other. Yeah. Um, different podcasts, but for like what you know, what I draw from strangely enough is I di- I started life as as a as a like a high school youth minister for a group called gun life and, um, in, in seminary. So that's graduate degree for Jesusy people. Um, <laughs> a lot of my master's degree was really introspection. W- why do I want to work with troubled teens? What am I going to do? Like if I'm presenting you, cause really, the, sharing a the gospel is presenting information. Hey, here's what I know. Do you want to know more about this or no? No. Okay, cool. You still want to be friends? Cause like, you're cool. Let's hang out. Right. So I use a lot of that in the way that I coach the way that I approach pain science. Like I was a pain in the ass in seminary. Cause I was like, well, but if we can write a paper this way and we can write it this way, then there's not a right answer. Right. <laughs> and there's, there is a, there is a tension that I don't mind holding in the world of pain that like, you know, there's a bunch of brilliant people doing research in pain right now. They're probably all a little bit right and all a little bit wrong. And I'm okay with that Mm. because it just gives me more things to share with others and be like, Hey, but is this helpful? Like, is it your behavior? Mm. Like, do we just need to work on like some behavior change? Or like, is it all these adverse childhood events that maybe we need to like, work on or is it your squatting technique right like it gives me so many places to go but I don't really it's non-attachment is probably the official word but like I just don't care I don't care which one is right and which one is wrong I don't have a pony in the race and Mm -hmm. I feel like in even in school like they were teaching you how to become siloed like our education system kind of teaches you how to believe a a certain way in a certain, because it makes it so nice and clean. If A, then B, if B, then C, if no, Mm -hmm. then go this way, right? Like, and those flow charts are so great when we're young and we're inexperienced and we need some kind of pathway. But I would ask the young clinician, why do you need that? How does that actually help your person in pain? I get how it helps you, but how does it help them? And like, what do you really want from this? Because the answer of young 20-something Amy was, I wanted, I wanted to save the owie high school kids. I wanted to make them feel better because their owiness made me sad. Mm. That's a shitty reason to go into youth ministry, by the way. <laughs> It's also a super shitty reason to be in a healthcare profession is because somebody else has always hurt you. And if we're like deeply honest, most of us have gone in to fix people because we don't like things being broken around us. And and we, we kind of get off on helping. Like I'm it's, a hero. <laughs> right? Like I did good. I earned my dinner today. Like and I'm being a little flippant because it's usually easier to see this way. But like, if you really sit down and stare in the mirror and start pulling apart, what do I get out of like, why do I like the compliant patients and why am I so angry at the ones that aren't compliant? Like it's not about the patient folks. Yeah. It's, it's about what that means to you. And, and so I am all about get in there, dig it out, figure out why, this is so important to you. And then you need to hold that with an open hand mm. and, and try to move through it. Like it's never going to change. I still really love my clients getting better. Like there is no better high in the world than when a client texts me and says, oh my God, I did a two mile walk today. I didn't think I was a lot. Right? Like best yeah. feeling. Ever. Yes but I am no longer completely gutted if they never get there because it's not my responsibility. I, you know, and, Mm. and I know my whys now, I know my whys so that your behavior doesn't affect me anymore. I mean, like it affects me because I care about you, but it doesn't make me feel like a failure or make me feel like I'm not trying or I don't know, or I'm not smart enough and need to go to 18 more class food or.
1: yeah the way that we train our new therapists is quite um quite disempowering for them because they do feel i've done it wrong when things don't happen or when the person doesn't follow the rules and that's terrible for a young a young therapist because it's constant need to double check am i doing it right And I've talked before about the the need for professional supervision, which is not about I am checking that you're right, but I am here to support your development as a maturing, developing clinician, and I'll be there to do that till the day you retire. That's what we need more of. That it's okay to say, that was a really tough one, and I don't know what to do next, and not to feel like you're a failure. Because, how on earth, they would expect that we've got answers for everything and we don't. Um, but, you know, we want to pretend that we do. And I think the um, ability to feel lost and be okay in that messy ambiguity, the bit that's helped me and my motivation for working in pain um, wasn't so much to help people as I'm curious. This is the most fascinating part of healthcare to be involved in is trying to figure out what's going on and to work with somebody to help them discover which bits are are working for them. So curiosity drives me in in my work and compassion because here's somebody who's not doing what they really want to do, what matters in their own life. But to give somebody, to give a, a new clinician this idea that you've got to know it perfectly. And you've got to stay like that. And, and if it goes wrong, it's your fault. Is It's the most terrible thing that we do to young therapists, especially when we don't then put them into um, fostering really good relationships with supervisors who can say, hey, I care about you. And yeah, that last session was really hard for you, I know. Let's have a look at what went on for you. And care about the clinician, for goodness sake. Because if the clinicians aren't supported and nurtured and cared for, if they're not able to process the some of the stories that our new clinicians are, are hearing, you know, kids that are 20, 21 doing their first placement or first sort of year of therapy as physios, and they've never listened to somebody who's been in, in a traumatic relationship before. And Nobody sits with them to say that's that's what some people have to go through. How are you dealing with that? Can we not do that better? Because perhaps we'll take away some of that judgment that it's this person and their fault because they didn't leave that relationship or you know, that they didn't try hard enough. Um would no. have more of that kind of um compassion for one another as clinicians, and we might then that might spread more to the people that we want to try and help as well.
0: Yep, this is the second (laughs) podcast in a row where supervision comes up and I am all for compulsory supervision in in healthcare. And I think Mm -hmm. as musculoskeletal therapists, as an EP and talking to other physio, osteo, chiros, we we tend to palm away anything to do with quote unquote yellow flags and it's not Mm -hmm. within our scope. So we're not going to talk about it.
1: But it's not just yellow flags. It's actually, you know, if you look at neuro, you're working as a neurophysio, you've just had somebody who's had a stroke. They're a young mum, had a stroke. You are going to be impacted upon by that feeling of, that could have been me. That could have been my partner. Why on earth do we think we can't be in that same boat when we're working on MSK? I mean ots have got to we have an obligation we're professionally required to have supervision um it's not peer review it's not about did you do the right thing, did you follow the right test did you is your reasoning I, correct or not it's not it's about how are you going as a person and a professional that's what we need more of <laughs> i i don't I don't know how.
2: Any job that works with people, teachers, preachers, medicine, all of medicine, right? Anybody that's listening to stories, I don't know how all of those professionals do not have mandatory crisis training as part of their programs. How how are we not taught what to do when somebody's telling a story of domestic violence, of neglect, of childhood assault, of, you know, not having enough food, not cutting? I mean, that cutting was huge for a long time and patients come in and like, I'm like, you know, and my bosses had no idea what to do because they didn't, they were unaware. They were just, they were just entirely unaware. And again, I, you know, go back to my crazy youth ministry days where I'm like, we had to be, you know, we, we had to be prepared for suicide, for cutting, for disordered eating, for domestic, you know, parent to child violence in in that situation or or relational violence in our our teens you know like in our high school kids yeah how do we not and I don't know about you all but I have the I have the light up sign on my face that says tell me your horror stories in line at Walmart Mm. you know yeah I don't I don't understand from my perspective, like how that is not mandatory for every healthcare professional to have some kind of training that says, dear Lord Jesus, please go get yourself a counselor because you're going to need one because you work with people and we're all broken.
1: Yeah. And it's okay and not shameful. And actually it's a sign of strength and maturity
2: yes uh, and you're going to be affected by the stories of other people
1: yeah
2: like you're going to care about these people and they're going to tell you these atro- you know these atrocities mm. and it's going to affect you and that is normal and okay there's nothing wrong with you you didn't fail you didn't get too close you de- like you're, you're not um, messing
1: yeah. up yeah. you're human yeah it's it helps to reduce uh, Tendency to shut off, and it also helps to reduce the tendency to think that's the other. Yes. So, one of the things that bothers me is that, so I'm going to pick on physios because I can, but it's not immune. I'm not immune. It's not just physios. But so we get, we give people a, a home exercise program, right? But we've forgotten to find out what else this person has going on in their life. Apart from their rehab, they're also dealing with an insurer they're probably also trying to deal with the fact they've got a teenage kid that's acting up Um, yes they sprain their ankle and it's pretty painful but actually they've always had a bit of a chaotic day and we want them to fit this other thing in while they're still doing everyday life and you know and then we say they're not motivated you know at what point do we Have the arrogance to believe that this person should prioritize these really boring exercises because they they want
2: to get better.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, because they don't want to get better or they wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I had my my, um, concussion and I was about, oh, because I had it for nearly two years. And it was about a year and a half into, well, a year into it. I think and I had a teenage kid and I was trying to explain to my partner why I couldn't go to the grocery store because it was just too overwhelming and he was also trying to deal with a shitty work environment and it just got overwhelming and you know I was supposed to put my rehab above my teenage daughter acting out and my partner having a horrible time and i was supposed to then prioritize going back to work um sorry but actually no (laughs) and that's what we forget in our the lives of our clients that they we might be seeing them for this one msk problem this pain problem but i bet you they've got other stuff going on because we do and we're not I don't think we're weird. Well, maybe we are. (laughs) We're still maniacs. But, you know, we've got stuff that we do too. And yet we expect people just to drop their life and plonk our stuff down in the middle of it and make that the priority. And then wonder why that person hasn't and then blame them. I mean, how, how to demoralize somebody? And it is not necessarily something that the clinicians are doing deliberately. It is simply that we have not helped those clinicians stop and listen and think a little bit. And if you look at who gets to become a health professional, let's just look at the backgrounds of the people who become health professionals, brainy, generally middle class, generally had a nice lifestyle, being probably quite sporty or athletic, organized. They've not had to deal with all the stuff that many of our clients do. And we haven't taken the time to get those kids, I'm thinking kids, and pick them up and put them into the context of some of our clients' lives. What if we took them down to the bus exchange and got them just to sit and watch these these teenage kids who haven't got a place to go to, they haven't got a home, you know, that feels safe and they haven't got any money. And so they make it make fun playing in the bus exchange because it's the safest place for them to be. Maybe we need to expose kids to that. Maybe we need to take them to, you know, the the Pacifica family where they've got 15 people living in the house. And they're all sleeping in the lounge because that's what we do because it's a farno; it's a place where everybody goes. So they can learn that what we've experienced as you know, white middle-class people is not the norm because maybe that would give a little bit more compassion to the people that we work with.
0: There's so much. Yeah. No, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a huge gap. I think uh, we're touching on a, some of the systemic uh, maybe um, structural, social justice uh, mm. issues that do absolutely get in the way and, and aren't really talked about as much. I guess um, growing oh, really? up in a context where we don't really want to talk about politics or talk about you know, socioeconomic status or even the thought of finances in, in private practice is often talked about. And we don't really recognize the wider context in which this conversation should be had. We're kind of siloing mm. out other populations and not realizing who is being left out as as healthcare in general is is changing and shifting.
1: Yeah, so- uh, they talked about the the use of increasing digital interactions, but let's just think about what that means for someone like my mum, who's eighty one, who really can't figure out how to use this smartphone, and whose hands are really meshed with with arthritis, so she can't touch the the touch things. And it's really frustrating. Or my brother-in-law, who's got intellectual disability, he can't read. And now he cannot actually talk to somebody in the government department that's supposed to be helping him, because it's all digital and online. But now, we, we think that, you know, let's put digital healthcare; it'll make it accessible. You um, also
2: need stable internet connection.
1: Absolutely. And a place to live and a, you can do that.
2: Right? And a, and, a, and a quiet, you know, a relatively quiet, you can't you can't, mm. you can't have a, a health consultation at Starbucks.
1: Yeah, exactly. I,
2: mean, I guess you could, but I don't know anybody that would. Right?
1: Mm. And yet that's and, what lots of our people probably need to do. Because they don't right? have a phone. You know, they haven't got the data on their phones. Um, we, we do kind of shape our healthcare around the middle class. And when we look at the biggest predictors of health outcomes, it's ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, race, if you like, educational status. So, and and whether you're living in a rural environment or not. So if you haven't got a vehicle and you can't travel someplace, um, if you're on the east coast of the North Island, of um, north of Gisborne, where I grew up, where you don't have doctors because this is your five hours drive from Gisborne, you've got some nurses, but mainly you've got Maori healthcare workers, and you've got no internet because there isn't any. You know what are you meant to do? So this is these are the sorts of health disparities that. You know, I get frustrated when I'm reading online about um, we need to do the movement this way because this is the, and they argue the toss over a silly little piece of exercise when we've got these much bigger, um, really important socioeconomic determinants of health that um, we're just not bothering with because they feel too hard maybe, I don't know. As a private practice owner,
2: you know that coaches without insurance in the United States, yeah, that stuff does. I mean, it does feel impossible. Like mm. because I have to make my living. Like I, have got to, I've got I've to gotta eat. And I, like, I, I, I promise, I am not, I am, I am not rolling in the cash, right? <laughs> but, but I have to charge so that I can survive. Mm. and um and i i thought you know Bronnie, I've thought a lot about this and I'm like okay I can give freely in that Facebook group the the mm. chronic pain facebook group and and I do and I encourage people like look I got over a hundred blog posts go read them I've got mm. a four hour free class on pain like there are things we can do as clinicians where, you know I, if you have an employer I'm sorry go ask them make a petition make it make <laughs> like make some noise seriously people yeah. need access to information yeah and information is where it starts right like mm. if if we start with things that are cringe worthy to the three of us like you know pain doesn't always mean damage
1: it's a Which, powerful thing and it needs to be heard
2: right but can, can we can we utilize social media? Can we utilize the the public library and go give a you know the local community college? Do you guys have community colleges? Is that yeah. It? Okay. Can can we give a free presentation once a month, once a quarter, once a whatever? Mm. That's just free to the public, and we're just donating our time because we recognize all of those determinants that Bronnie just talked about yes. and i recognize even in saying you know going down to the community college like we're still missing those we're still missing people on mm. that list yeah but it's going to take us the healthcare professionals saying hey this is important this is important information that needs to get to the masses because Hello? let's be real they're not going to get it on TV. They're not going to get it from their primary care. Like, I, it, you know, if you're on Medicaid in the States, good luck finding a duck.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know. Within the the constraints, I guess, of, of, you know, we need to have a sustainable business and we can't just give away everything for free. But at the same time, we can still help people. We can still provide a lot. And maybe there is a, a space for us to be educators, for to us to translate some of the information into the language of the communities and the people mm. that we want to help, who even if they do come across the information, they might not perhaps understand it or might not have the background. And we speak very much from a privileged, high health literacy position. Mm. And that brings a lot of, of potential for us and opportunity to, to translate, be the translator for, for communities mm. out there
1: yeah I mean my niche has been to make information that's locked up in journals available to clinicians who can't access those, because I'm a geek and I enjoy it. and and then more recently to kind of um, editorialise a bit more. Yeah. and And I think that that the internet has been, oh people describe it as being terrible, but actually it's been really, really good. In many ways we have got a lot more information out the problem is we, we shout amongst each other and we forget that actually the people that we really want to help um probably don't read that stuff and so we we you know argue about how we do this little movement this exercise which needs to be done a particular way and we forget that perhaps just getting up and moving is what most people in the community need to hear. <laughs> um, so we could be a little bit more nuanced in how we go about um, giving that information out. But it is it is something that we can do. And I, I agree we need to make we need to have an income because that's part of what what we need to do. But there have been um, things that the Noi group have done like the the outreach groups. Um, there's been the ISP global year of sort of things every year so it is it is uh, there are ways to make it happen it's the will to to do that I think um
2: and I think to I think on a tiny scale when you see clinicians trying to create memes posts for the chronic pain community for people in pain hmm. It's 10 words on a picture. It's not the full story. They maybe no more, maybe they don't. Like, how about we just say, yay, you did it. You tried. Yeah. Keep going instead of like ripping it to shreds. Because admittedly, it took me quite some time to get over the fear of being ripped to shreds.
1: Yeah. Because uh,
2: clearly, Ronnie is amazing. I love her. And and, uh, like, I'm so glad we're doing this together. But we speak very differently. I speak patiently. I, I speak patient and that's like, I feel like that's my role in all of this, mm. right? Like to, to call things out, to speak from my experience and say, look, 20 some years in chronic pain, I ran into a lot of really bad clinicians. And here's the thread in all of that. Mm. And I ran into like two good ones. Mm. That is, <laughs> there is disparity there. And even the good ones didn't have accurate information. They just listened. Like they were still biomedically incorrect, <laughs> like mm. the medical information was still wrong, but they were kind and they listened. Yeah. And so none of us are gonna get it right. So just because somebody posts something that isn't up to your snuff, doesn't mean it's not helping reach people that know nothing.
0: Exactly, yeah. And, and we, yeah. we
2: have to encourage that as a whole.
0: Mm comes back to it's not about you yeah that humility yeah. that we talked about at the start mm-hmm. and how important that is I think this is a bloody amazing conversation I think you mm-hmm. just need to point that out at the moment and if if we were to maybe provide some helpful starting points I see this kind of framework and lens as so different to the common discussions that we see maybe in social media groups um, and understandably so we're not really taught this kind of bigger zoomed out perspective um, where we've mentioned supervision, but where else, what will be helpful to start for for clinicians that are listening and, and starting to piece together pieces of the puzzle, maybe in their own experience of where they might be able to, to change, where they might be able to um, help out communities where we can appreciate the person's experience within their wider context. And maybe go away from just the specifics of, particular treatments and exercise selection and zoom out into what actually probably matters a lot more to people we're helping. What, what are some helpful ways for clinicians to, to start along this journey?
1: i actually, I'm going to suggest something radical. I suggest that it wouldn't be a bad thing for, um, for clinicians to jump into some of the patient groups and just listen.
2: That's exactly what I was going to say.
1: Do not enter the, the debate. Do not add anything. Just listen. Because that's where we hear the heartbreaking stories of people saying, look, I've been on this medication. It feels terrible. Now my doctor wants to take me off it. I don't know what to do. You know, let's hear that. Because that's, you know, we we forget that. Um, and, well, and I know, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> I was going to say, I have said over and over and over every time I'm asked this question, that's the answer that I give. Go into the patient mm. group, keep your mouth shut, keep your hands off the keyboards. They yeah. don't need to hear from you. Um, and they're going to attack you, quite honestly. So just, I mean, like, save yourself the trouble. Just don't. Mm. Um. But. Patients will say things to other patients or people in pain will say things to other people in pain that they will never, ever, 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 ever tell you because Mm. you, as much as they love you, they need you. They Mm. need you to keep helping because whatever you're doing, if they're coming back, they believe on some level that it's helping, right? But the real honest stuff that happens person to person in those groups and you hear like, And you will hear things that will upset you i cannot tell you the number of times i have heard and then they started telling me pain was in my brain and i'm never going back and you want to defend that pt stop clearly they did not have permission to try Mm. to correct this person's thoughts right like there was no consent there so this person has every right to be completely pissed off that 20 years of what they knew was being told they were wrong. Yeah. At that point, you're just like every other doctor they've seen. They don't need that. So no clinician, you are not wrong. You are right. They need to hear this, but not like that. And so then you get to see how, you know, you think you're, you, you think you've had this great experience as the clinician and, and you, you know, yeah. all you think all these light bulbs went off, but then you hear what they really say outside the office. And um, an interesting phenomenon to look into is, is called politeness language. Mm. And we, as clinicians, we need to understand that we are absolutely ripe to have politeness language thrown at us because we are needed by the person we're mm. serving. And it doesn't matter how equitous you think the relationship is, your client will always see you as the superior and therefore generally will want to please you and say things that they think you want to hear.
1: The other thing I think that we can learn from being in those forums is just how much common sense good shit goes on. There is advice that really is bang on. And one of the things that I love about groups, like you, Amy, I just, I love group work, Because people will challenge one another far, far more vigorously than I can. I've got a little bit more face validity because I have pain. But if you don't have pain, just, you know, back out. But if you're sitting on one of these forums and you listen to them pushing each other and giving each other clues and figuring stuff out, you know, we dismiss that. We often don't even recognise that people have brought their strengths with them to the consultation to with us because we never even asked them what was working. We just assumed that what this person was doing was not working. That's why they're seeing us. How rude. Um, you know, this whole idea of booming and busting, we see this as a really bad thing. Did you ever think that to be able to push through when you're really, when you really want something, that's a strength. And then if you could just plan to have a break, then that actually would work. Why on earth do we think that that's a really bad thing and know what you have to do is this paced approach and you're going to do it my way.
2: Well, and that they do it over and over. Like yeah. the resilience involved in that, like you yeah. did it and it turned out miserably and you did it again. Yep. Like that, that's resilience like that's the belief that I can do
1: this thing yeah and we just as health professionals we're just so often totally oblivious to the fact that the people that we're working with have got stuff figured out I am I'm always in awe of the people that I've worked with that they've managed to turn up when they're really sore. They've made it priority. They've made this little space in their busy day when they don't have much energy and they're hard, finding it hard to think and plan and they've managed to come and see me. Wow, when do we give that kind of credit to people and use that as a strength? So you know, we can flip our narrative of this poor, vulnerable patient. Let's flip it over and recognize that people come with strengths. Sometimes it's um, strengths that need to be tempered a bit Mm -hmm. because it isn't working, but that's not our job to judge that. Let's help that person figure that out. So one of the things I, I use a lot of is this motivational interview and what's good about this approach and what's not so good about it. What would be good about making a change and what would be not so good? Not because I want to judge it, but because I want the person to reflect on what's, it's like in their life, ultimately, I want people to have a repertoire of things that they can pick and choose from. So they've got lots of variability in how they can go about living their own life, because ultimately, it's not my life. Well,
2: and it's not, it's not our values, either. like it's not our values, right? Mm-hmm,
1: exactly.
2: The way I spend money is going to be different from the way Daniel spends money. And the way that I spend my time is going to be different from the way Bronnie spends her time. Mm -hmm. And I want my life back. (laughs) My life. The things that are important to me. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, I mean, Bronnie's got a lovely backyard. I would like to spend time in it. I just, (laughs) you know, I'm a little far away. But, you know, (laughs) it's not Bronnie's values and ethics and morals and things that are important to her that she's trying to get me back to. Mm. And oftentimes, those are a lot of the conversations I hear that I, I am unable to participate in because I get angry.
1: Yeah, I do too. You know, we, we force people who've never enjoyed exercise ever, and we force them to think that they have to go to a gym when they'd probably be far better off walking the dog down to the park and chucking a Frisbee for them. And I I just think we, we've got to step beyond. So evidence-based practice is a really, really good thing. But what it forgets is that this is an artificial environment, and inside evidence-based practice is the clinician's experience and the Person's values and preferences. So, what we've decided is we will give them exercises because that's what the evidence says, but we forgot their preferences and f- we've forgotten our own experience of failing to get somebody to do their home based exercises. Everybody knows that adherence to home based exercises is atrocious, and yet, what do people get given? I mean, let's do something that's a bit more fun. Three, to that person, three sets of ten. Oh, yeah. I mean, if that is somebody's love and that's what they want to get back to, well, why not? Mm-hmm. But seriously, it's not everybody's. Um, don't ask my mother to do that, because at eighty-one, she's never exercised. She's going to triple A, which is the always makes me laugh. Let's do triple A, which likes so. mm-hmm. <laughs> you would like and you no, we won't go there. But oh, that's no, what no. she does. Yeah. So she she does her exercises now, but that wasn't something that she'd ever done before and the reason she goes now is because it's social so Mm -hmm. can't we look beyond the movement and its perfection and into the function of this movement practice that this person prefers and let's help them do what they want in their life sorry physios
0: (laughs) eps too i if if i see another systematic review meta-analysis on what's the best exercise for non specific low back pain out of the so many out there i think we're going further and further away from that as you mentioned what's mm. what does the person want to do let's uh, make it more open-ended it allows a bit more flexibility we can get out of the i need to prescribe exercise for everyone mode it's like
1: i mean an ot can prescribe doing but we wouldn't we help somebody work out what they want to do in their daily life and part of that will be a movement practice for most people. Most people want to do something movement-y. They don't necessarily want to do it in the way that, that they've been told to. And as an OT, I would hate to prescribe to somebody, you shall pace. And it will be like this. And here is your timetable. And you can now go away and live your life in these 20-minute chunks. I mean, really, it's not.
0: Awesome, I think that's, <laughs> we could talk for hours, but I think that covers the majority of, I feel like what's what's been missing and maybe um, some of the nuances that are often uh, neglected or not really considered in the clinician focused, I guess, discussions on what's the best treatment for XYZ diagnosis, looking at the bigger picture and involving the person in that decision-making. Mm. So Amy, Ronnie, thank you very much for sharing your time and for the listeners out there that are keen to find out a bit more about you and any upcoming projects start with you amy i know you've got an amazing facebook group and for clinicians i'd highly recommend checking out
2: Mm -hmm. i I, we're almost overbalanced on clinicians versus client like people in pain though so because because i don't do any client facing like people in pain facing websites so probably the best thing to do if you want information from me is to follow my business page restoring venus Mm. um don't follow me on instagram i don't get it i'm not like i'm there but i don't i don't i don't i don't get it um and restoring venus on tiktok i'm starting to do more of the short videos because i like the i like like to talk it's shocking to everybody here I know um, so those yes. at, at my website restoringvenus.com, you mm-hmm. can contact me through there there's there <laughs> there is a ton of free resources I've written two books that are on Amazon just look up my name um, that yeah if you need clients that need to know they're not alone my memoir is great for that and then I have got a collection of patient stories As well as just some basics about pain and the boom bust cycle, and like how we can do how pain is more than that is a very easy read. So,
0: and in digestible language, I've shared a few of your resources to patients, and they've really appreciated it. So,
2: and then you know, if you got clients that need a place to land, my Facebook group is a very soft place, and and um. Mm And there's, yeah, I, I, like I said earlier, I believe that they should have access to free stuff. And then if they need more help, I am available as a coach.
0: Awesome. Any, and and Bronnie?
1: Um, so I blog on www.healthskills.co.nz. Um, and that's long floor form and that's written for professionals. Um, and not always an easy read. And that's fine. Um, I'm also on. I'm I'm on TikTok to watch the dog videos and and the dances, and I do nothing much else, and and I laugh a lot on there. Um, I've got Instagram, and that's mainly my silver smithing and the dog. Um, so and then Facebook, really the exploring pain group, which is still a really active and busy group. Um, and I t- kind of dip in and out, but. Otherwise, for learning, for those of you clinicians who want to learn, um, the University of Otago's postgrad programs in pain and pain management are available for people. Um, if you're not a New Zealander, um, they are expensive. Um, and I'm sorry, that's the government. If you are a New Zealander, even if you're living overseas, it's a lot easier um, and it's, it's reasonably affordable. And we teach to the International Association for the Study of Pains Interprofessional um, Curriculum. And it's we have an amazing time. We're very, very lucky. Some brilliant people that join us um, in that. So do do have a look at the University of Otago website.
0: It just makes me want to be a Kiwi right now. <laughs> and, Come and visit. And, and <laughs> any courses for my own selfish knowledge, Amy and, and Ronnie attending or presenting the San Diego Paint Summit's coming soon and travel is slowly coming back into normality. Anything online? Um, I, have,
2: I have a clinician course that I like created and then the pandemic came and I never did anything with it. So, you know, um, I, st- I still would love to come back to Australia. I, I don't, I don't know that trying to manage that with my long COVID right now is my best choice, but, um, But I would love, but I do, but I do have, I do have a course that's basically like breaking down pain science for clinicians and like what we, what I keep seeing that we get really, really wrong and like
1: Mm.
2: how to just be yourself, like just be yourself and stop worrying about all the A and the B and, you know, just, just be you. Yes. Um,
1: (laughs) Came grade. Right.
2: And, um, I have to take, a, a. four hours of ethics to renew my certification next year. So nothing exciting right now. That's terribly, terribly awful. But (laughs) they decided to make a requirement in the States that we all need to take ethics training every two years. Why not? Probably not a bad thing. No, no, probably not. But it, you know... (laughs) That and sexual mm. harassment both have to be taken every two years, which makes you kind of go, hmm.
1: Mm. Yeah, weird. Um for me I've got um there is online the Springboard Training. So this is the group program that I um teach. That's um it's a group program for people with pain based on ACT. Um and that's you can click through that, to that from my blog. And I'm about to develop the OT um, intro to pain, well, yeah, clinical reasoning for OTs working in pain and pain management, Um, just because we are developing that area a lot. There are a lot of OTs who work in pain management, but probably we haven't had as much education um, professionally as some of us have, some professions have. Mind you, I can say that for our doctors, Probably OTs get about as much.
0: <laughs> yeah, we need more. OTs. It's more than nociception <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Ladies, thank you so much for your generosity and, and your passion is infectious. You're doing so much hard work and so needed. Thank you both. And until the next time.
1: Yep. Thank you.